Good morning, and uh, happy Resurrection Day, as it is on all Sundays, but especially this one. And uh, we would like to um, have a special Sunday school today. Today we're kind of taking a break from our uh, series, and uh, we're going to talk specifically about the resurrection, and, uh, but we're going to talk about it as it is a personal activity that happened for our sake. The title of today's lesson is Justified by Resurrection. So we're going to kind of look at some of the interesting mysteries of it and maybe even get a little insight into it in a way that maybe we haven't had before. So I'm kind of excited about it, and I can tell you are too. And those of you watching online, I know you're excited too. So let's start with prayer, and then we'll get going. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you uh, eager to learn from your word, uh, to learn what it was uh, you wanted for us in uh, our redemption, and how the sacrifice of your Son was part of that plan, and that through the power of the Holy Spirit, his resurrection has made us be able to partake in the blessing of being saved from sin. So Lord, today we pray for uh, your help as we go through these passages. Help us to understand and help this to to really uh, change us in our hearts, to make us think differently about you because of what your word says. So we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, well, um, let's start out in 1 Corinthians 15, and then I'll give you a little something that, had, that I've been thinking about a long time, especially when I was younger. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 16 and going to 17. Uh, this is Paul talking about uh, the resurrection of Christ and how that relates to our resurrection uh, in, the last time, in the last days. And he comes to a conclusion, um, kind of a logical conclusion about what he has just said. He comes to this. He says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So what does our faith, if I can put it this way, our entire, the entire um, understanding of Christianity itself uh, relies for us, relies on one specific event. And that event is Christ's resurrection, which makes the resurrection everything to us. Because without it, literally, our faith has no meaning. It's meaningless. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter uh, what you think uh, God can do for you. If there's no resurrection of Christ, um, it doesn't mean anything. That's what Paul is getting at. All that doctrine, all the complexities of Scripture, everything has no meaning if Christ really didn't raise from the dead. 
Now, I want to speak to those, those of you that are younger, teenagers and, and younger, because I want to share with you uh, a thought that I had growing up, and I'm sure this is a thought you have had. The thought is this. Uh, why did it have to be this way? Uh, in other words, Christianity seems weird. Uh, it seems weird because there's this entire culture of, um, of how something uh, came about for us to be redeemed. So we have the story of Scripture, God's creation, and most people can follow that. Okay, God created everything. It makes sense. Then things get really weird because somehow man was able to sin and to break covenant. And now we're talking about things that, as a young person, just seems like a different culture to us, right? Well, to young people, I guess I'm not one of them anymore. Uh, but uh, to young people, it just seems like a different culture. Covenant? What's breaking a covenant? Okay, so Adam disobeyed. Uh, couldn't God just forgive him? Couldn't he just say, hey, you know what? We all make mistakes. <laughs> well, at least you guys do. And so uh, I forgive you. Why couldn't it be like that? How is it possible that Adam's sin then just decimated the rest of us to be in the same sin he was. Well, that doesn't make any sense. And then, on top of that, in order to make everything right, you have God the Father and God the Son uh, making a pact, what we call a covenant, that the Son will be sent to save us uh, in this way of dying on the cross. But before all that, all these people in the Old Testament have to slaughter these lambs and these goats and then burn them, and then their blood is cast on this altar, and but it only lasts a little while until they sin again, they got to do the whole thing again. What is all this about? I mean, the complexities and weirdness of it, and we, we you know, the grown-ups are acting like this is normal, this is great, isn't it great Christ raised from the dead, and these young people are thinking, yeah, but why did it have to be that way? Why couldn't God just say, uh, I forgive everybody? And then make it known to everyone, hey, you guys have been doing what I don't want you to do, but I've forgiven you. Just wanted you all to know. And then that's it. Why, did, why all these other things that seem so strange to us? Why not another way? Or why this particular strange way? <clears throat> so... Uh, <clears throat> So growing up, I, uh, I had a best friend. His name was Emmanuel. And we were best friends from the third grade all the way, even to this day. And um, he is Korean. <clears throat> and uh, so <clears throat> he's not Korean as in he's just, uh, his ethnicity happens to be Korean. His parents came from Korea. Um, his brother was born in Korea, but he was, Emmanuel was born in America, and his parents were very, very Korean. And so um, his mother uh, still kind of struggles with uh, English, 
But uh, just to let you know that this was the, the culture that they, they retained and maintained in their home was very strong, the Korean culture. So in that culture uh, comes a different kind of food. Uh, that house always uh, smelled of a foreign food to me. Uh, and it was, uh, I learned what kimchi was. I learned that it involves being buried in the backyard, and that was weird. I didn't understand that very much. Uh, and I uh, found out that there are little fish that uh, they dry them out, and there's like their eyes are still there, and then they uh, they they eat it. Uh, um, and um, there was a lot of uh, seaweed that came in little like paper uh, that kind of melted on your tongue if you were to put it on your tongue. I think I, I never did that, but uh, but it was just different, right? There was there wasn't much furniture in the house. There's a lot of sitting on the floor. Um, Mrs. Jung was, um, was very, very sweet to me, uh, very kind, um, and, uh, but kind of hard on Emmanuel. <laughs> uh, the, the culture was, Emmanuel was uh, to respect and revere his parents, and to make sure the choices he was making was going to make the family uh, proud, uh, to show that he... His, his way of showing love for his family was being successful for the sake of his family. And that was built in that culture, in that uh, collectivist idea that uh, was so strong in the Korean culture. And, uh, and Emmanuel was kind of caught between the culture of America, right, where everyone just wants to be their own person and and grow up to, to think for themselves. We, we say that, but what we really want is just to uh, be given responsibility before we're ready, right? Isn't that the way kids are? Why don't you treat me like an adult? But they, they don't want the kind of adult where like, you have to pay for things. So, um, and so he's caught in that kind of a culture, kind of the American independence thing, and the culture of his parents, which is the culture of community and... Uh, doing things for the sake of your family, and things like that. And then all the other parts of that culture. Um, coming into the house and taking your shoes off was uh, standard. It was um, considered impolite to not take your shoes off. And there's a whole system that's behind all that. Well, now Emmanuel has his own kid. Uh, she's about five years old now. And she's growing up in California where everything's very American, right? Um, there's lots of diversity there, but it's mainly an American culture, right? And pretty soon, they're going to be moving to North Carolina, which is super American. <laughs> so, uh, so how is she going to look at the Korean culture when she's introduced to it? All right, she's speaking pretty much, you know, English and Interacting in the American way, what's going to happen when she looks back and, you know, sees her grandparents living this strange way? It will seem foreign to her, right? I'm bringing this up because <clears throat> there is a sense in which uh, young people 
Look at the Old Testament with people killing bulls and, and goats and sheep and stuff like that, slitting their throats, letting their blood drip onto the altar and then burning their bodies uh, with the priests getting some of the best parts of the meat, needing the meat, and that all seems really weird to them. But what I want to, uh, to try and help you understand is that perhaps what we are witnessing is, if I can put it this way, this is not by the greatest way to put it, but we're watching the culture of God. In other words, there's a way God does things because of who God is. In fact, when you interact with a culture and someone that's involved in a culture, what you cannot do is separate that person from their culture. Part of how I know Mrs. Jung is because of the culture that she lived in. That culture was so bonded to her because it's kind of a lot about who she is. Um, I, you know, the only time I ever saw shoes on her feet was when she went outside. So every time I came to Emmanuel's house, she never had shoes on. And so, because in her house she doesn't do that because of her culture. It was part of who she was, how she lived, came from kind of a, a, um, a character that she had. There was a kind of character she had that demanded respect from her children. It wasn't just a culture detached from Mrs. Jung. It was part of who Mrs. Jung was, living in the culture. And so when we see this creation, the fall of man and the redemption that God provided for man and the way God provided it, in a way we're seeing how God acts based on his uh, character. And somewhere in God's character is this idea of how redemption is going to be handled. We're witnessing, and if I can put it this way, God's culture that's foreign to us because we are fallen people. It is foreign to us because we have grown up in the sin. We have grown up in this way of living that is so different, so strange to God's world, that when we are reintroduced to God's world, it seems very strange to us. Just like Emmanuel's little girl is going to one day look at Korean culture and see it as strange, she will also have to remember that is part of who she is. That returning to who you are, back to your culture. Why is Ancestry.com so huge right now? Because people understand that when I look back on my culture, I'm seeing a little bit of who I am. We cannot separate culture from the personal aspect of it. And so when we see how it is that God came to redeem man, we are seeing uh, we are seeing his character. We are revisiting the culture of God, if I can put it that way. What are the components of redemption? Well, first of all, redemption presupposes or assumes that there is something that needs to be fixed. Something went wrong, the fall. And there is a penalty for this covenantal disobedience. So first, within, within this whole thing, we see this covenant with Adam, where Adam is, the culture 
that God has created for Adam to live in is natural for Adam. It all makes sense. It all is completely uh, part of who Adam is, and then he falls. And this covenantal break requires a penalty. And this is the hardest thing for a sinful culture to grasp, that there would be a penalty for our sin. Why? Because we have accepted sin to the point where it's part of who we are. It's part of our culture. And now God's saying there is a penalty for who you are. We are sin. We can't separate sin from who we are. It's not this thing out here, that whole idea of God hates sin but loves a sinner, um, is a strange phrase as if sin is this thing out here and we're over here. Uh, we are the sin. We, we have created the culture of sin. And there's a penalty demanded. And there's representation within this redemption. Someone represents the rest. Now that might seem strange to our sin, sin culture, right? A sin culture wants to say, uh, that's other people's problem. Uh, I'm really not that bad. I'm actually this neutral thing that sometimes slips into this other stuff, but I'm not that bad. And we do that as Christians too, don't we? Um, other people's sin is disgusting to us. But we go home and we sin and we're like, well, that's not bad. You know, I had a tough day today. and uh, So it's not too bad when I do it. But when I see other people do it, it's terrible. It's just terrible. We've got to really pray for those people. But when I do it, it's not too bad. And so we, we, we still fight with that, right? That's the, that sin culture. And so when we look, especially young people, when you look at this idea of representation that Adam represented us to the point where we were sinning with him seems like a strange thing because of our... But that's because of our sin culture. It's not because of reality. In reality, that's everything. In fact, it is based on that same representation principle that we are able to be saved from that sin, according to Romans 5. And so there is a righteousness that, that God has that he wants us to have and a holiness that God has that he wants us to have because these are parts of his character. And he wants us to imitate his character. So these are the components of redemption. And why are, this, why, are the, why are these components there? These components are there is because they are there in the Trinity. The most basic idea we know about God is that he is three persons in one God. So God is one, and he is a personal one God. And, and as a personal one God, he is three persons, and all three persons are the one God. And I know that sounds strange, but that is the most basic principle of what we know about God. And because this is the most basic principle of God, everything in his creation is going to imitate that in some way. And so each person represents the other perfectly. Who is the perfect representation of the Father? The Son, right? And each one we know of something of the, each one of the members of the Trinity because each member of the Trinity represents the other. 
There's representation in the Trinity. Now, that is so complex, we can't possibly understand that fully, but we do understand it in the sense that Scripture speaks of it. In fact, the Holy Spirit represents Christ so much and so perfectly that in 1 Corinthians 15, in the same passage we're looking at, uh, Christ is referred to as a spirit because they are bonded so closely together. He is, uh, Christ is referred to as life-giving spirit. And so if that is the case, we have a God who is one person, uh, who is one God, who is a personal one God. And, in, and as that one God, you have three persons who each represent each other perfectly. So there's representation already going on for the unity of that oneness. And there is righteousness and holiness that exudes from that God. And so our justification is going to look like that. Our justification is going to be representative in nature. Our justification is going to transform us into righteousness, and our justification is going to make us holy. So there is holiness and sanctification are going to be joined together, distinct things, but one relying on the other for the, so that we might be more like God. So... I want you to look at 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us something about how this redemption was made possible. What we see is a confession of faith. Um, So if anyone asks, um, why do Presbyterians have confessions? Because they're found in the Bible. So here is one uh, in 1 Timothy 3.16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And this is the summary that you're going to see next. That's what a confession does. It summarizes the main doctrines. He who was revealed in the flesh. Who was revealed in the flesh? Christ, right? was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. This is the summary of Christ's work. That second line that says, was vindicated in the spirit. I want you to look closely at that. That word there is the same word we use for justified. Um, In fact, some other translations even use the word justified. Most of them do. Um, I think some people might be concerned about that word. How is it that Jesus Christ was justified? What could that possibly mean? I mean, don't we use the term uh, growing up? Maybe some of you went to a particular kind of Sunday school where someone says, well, what's justification? Just as if I never sinned. No? Anybody? (laughs) Okay, well. Well, you didn't grow up in my Sunday school. Uh, okay, so uh, so what does it mean you know, that Jesus Christ was justified in the Spirit? What is it that Jesus Christ would need to be justified from? Well, first of all, 
We need to know what it means uh, to be justified. Uh, what would you say would be a quick definition of the word justified? Okay. It is, uh, what Chuck said was, it is a legal declaration of uh, taking the righteousness of one and placing on the count of another. And for us, that's exactly what it is. In a general sense, to be justified, uh, like Chuck was saying, is to be declared righteous, a declaration of righteousness. So we have this sacrificial system. And again, we have to remember, the sacrificial system is telling us something about the character of God. It might seem foreign to us in our sin culture to have a sacrificial system. The Old Testament might seem distant to us because we have been born and raised in sin. But when you look back at the Old Testament, hopefully what you're recognizing is part of your heritage. That as a Christian, part of your heritage is when the, a time when the church was to take these animals and sacrifice them as a shadow of what is to come. Because in the character of God, life is demanded for the pardon of those who are in sin. Now that might seem strange to us because of the culture we have grown up in, but this is the culture of reality that we're talking about. The culture of reality is, the, is when God is, is, God's character is best displayed <clears throat> out in the world. And so, when we look at the Old Testament, we are seeing this, this declaration. Okay, once the, once the sacrifice is done in the way it was told with the heart you're supposed to have, a heart that's circumcised before the Lord with true repentance, there's a declaration of righteousness, but it doesn't last, right? These were just shadows. We needed something that would last. And those shadows were necessary because God is teaching the church. He is teaching the church. This is what is demanded. And nothing will do except the one sacrifice of the Son. And so the Son lives a perfect life of obedience. He lives a perfect life of obeying the law. And he lives a perfect life of obedience unto death. But the death was not, according to Paul, the death is not enough. If Christ came and was to be the sacrifice for us, the permanent, absolute sacrifice that would be enough, the death was necessary, but it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't everything. Why? At the end of the sacrifice in the Old Testament, what was demanded? It was demanded that the sacrifice be done right. And to do it right, you needed a priest to go through each, each step the right way, and for the priest to have the right kind of heart so that he would be doing it in the right way, and the person 
receiving the sacrifice, the benefits of the sacrifice, had to have a heart that was the right way. Otherwise, the sacrifice would not be declared right. So now we have Christ on the cross who lived the perfect life for our sake where he obeyed the law, he obeyed death, and he died. Where is the time where God the Father, through the work of the Spirit, says this was sufficient, this was righteous? When does that happen? It happens, according to 1 Timothy 3.16, it happens at resurrection. The resurrection was the declaration. The resurrection was the thing that says this was a suitable sacrifice for all. And it was at that, at to, at that time, at that resurrection, that Christ was being justified. It was being shown as this was the righteous and perfect and suitable sacrifice. I accept it. And that acceptation of that sacrifice was that resurrection. That's why Christ was raised by the Spirit and the work of the Father. It's important to understand that distinction, that the Spirit is doing the raising and the Father is doing the raising because this is demonstrating that they have accepted this sacrifice. Now that's important to us because within all of that, what we find is something that sounds kind of unnatural. Uh, we grow up as Protestants, uh, trying to reject the, uh, the way that um, Catholics have talked about uh, their salvation, which is a works-based salvation, right? We grow up as Protestants saying, you don't get to heaven by works. Well, actually, we got to be careful how we say that. You do get to heaven through works. Uh, Works have gotten you into heaven. They're just not yours, right? They're Christ, Christ's work has, is, is what makes that sacrifice acceptable. So it's Christ's justification that we look to. Now, how is it that we are justified? Um, and this is something that, uh, that Chuck brought out. Christ's justification is now placed on our account. And so what we find is that when we are justified, when we are accepted, it's not our justification, it's Christ's. We are taking, if I can put it this way, an alien justification onto ourselves. Uh, Christ is placing that justification that was his and placing it on our account, and our account is hideous. Our account has been one that shows we have offended an almighty God. We've offended him through our sin in Adam, and we've offended him in our sin that we've done particularly. 
We have offended him because in our culture of sin, it is a part of who we are. And when we look at this whole system of redemption, it seems strange to us. It seems strange that it would be done this way. It's strange that there would be a need for a sacrifice of blood. That Christ would take on the wrath of his father onto himself for the sake of others. Why not just say, hey everybody, it's okay. The reason why Christ did not come down to earth and just tell everyone, hey, it's okay, God forgives you, is because Christ does not live in a sinful culture. He does not live in a culture of sin. He lives in a culture of Trinity. And in the culture of Trinity, this is the way that justification is brought about. This is the way righteousness is brought about. Righteousness is brought about through the sacrifice of the perfect for those that are not. In, and if I can put it, instead of using the word culture, if I can put it this way. In the truth of reality, sin demands death. If I can put it this way, Christ's righteousness, who Christ is, his, his character demands that when sin occurs, death comes. And there is no hope for those in sin. And God provides the hope. God provides a way. And it's not just a way. It's not just that God could have picked a million different ways to do this. He could have done it where he made a deal with the devil. There's a way he could have done it where he just pardons everybody. Maybe there's a way he could do it where he just descends to earth and everyone's like in awe and everyone just repents immediately. Uh, There's a different way where he could have done it where maybe it wasn't a cross and maybe there's a way he could do it where, you know, there wouldn't have been spilling of blood, but maybe just a lot of pain. Maybe there's just a way where just he's just so heartbroken, but then turns and says, you know what? I'm going to overcome my heartbreak uh, feelings and uh, love everybody and everyone gets to go to heaven. As if this way was just one of many arbitrary ways God could have redeemed his people. What I am telling you is, according to scripture, this is the way that reflects the character of God to us. And the only reason that this way that he did it would seem strange to us is because we have grown up in a culture of sin. And that culture of sin has made all of this seem strange. And the only way that this would be appalling to us is because we are still wedded to our culture of sin. And it would seem appalling to us because we are, if I can put it this way, still in the raptures of our adultery The only way that we look at creation, fall, redemption, and we understand the redemption being the way that Christ or that God works in his triune nature is if we recognize this redemption as home, where we recognize it as who we really are. I want you to look at Colossians 1. 
want you to rec- uh, see something that maybe we can recognize. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, uh, one of those um, ancestry commercials where people find out they're related to someone cool, and they're all really, you know, excited about it. They're really stoked. They're like, you know, I was one of my ancestors are, you know, some some uh, warrior prince in Africa, and like, wow, and I'm a warrior prince deep down inside, uh, or whatever. Have you ever seen those commercials? Uh, and they really own it because they realize they're, you know, related to someone cool. Uh, if they found out they're related to, you know, Bundy or something, I'm sure they probably wouldn't be as excited. Um, but what, what's interesting about Ancestry.com is that it's tapping into something quite human about us. Uh, if I can put it this way, quite covenantal about us. We are fascinated with our heritage because that's covenantal activity. Wanting to know about your heritage so that you can know who you are. There is a relationship that knowing your heritage is a personal activity because it is impossible to, like I said before, tear culture away from who you are. And in uh, Colossians 1, it is making the claim that Christ really is God. There was a heresy going around that Christ was somehow created by God uh, to be our Redeemer, but instead Colossians making a very different point and says, no, Christ is God. And in this argument that Paul is making, if we look at verse 18, it says this, he, speaking of Christ, is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Uh, Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven." What I want to show you is that this redemption, this way that, that God has redeemed his people through representation, through placing uh, justification, righteousness upon our account that isn't ours but is borrowed, an alien account, or alien righteousness upon our account, is not an impersonal activity. Instead, this is extremely personal. For those that are in Christ, you are, you are witnessing a culture that is yours. He is firstborn of the dead. This is demonstrating that his resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection And as a firstborn, it is demonstrating that there is a family unity between us and Christ. It sounds almost heretical, but it is biblical language to call Christ our brother. 
although you might have grown up in a sinful culture, in a culture of sin, what is happening in Colossians 1 is helping us see that our true heritage is in Christ because we are covenantally united with him as our brother, and in him are all the benefits of this redemption. Because in him, we are being reconciled back to our Father. Now that is what is, what is real. What we find is the life we have been living in our sin culture is the fake life. What we find is that it is unnatural to think that sin could be forgiven outside of death and sacrifice. That sacrifice, sacrificing with blood, is part of our heritage, part of who we are, because we are bonded with our brother, who is the one who sacrificed himself and with his blood made us reconcile us back to our Father. And so for those, uh, those young people out there that, keep, uh, that look at what is going on at church every day, every Sunday, and what's going on with the language we use about resurrection, being excited about the resurrection of Christ, because it, talks, because it reminds us that we are guaranteed to be resurrected at the last days, and all of this, was just a shadow in the Old Testament with the, with the blood of animals, and now we have the blood of Christ, and you hear all that language, and it might seem strange to you. I am telling you it might seem strange to you because you might have been growing up in a culture of sin. And to a culture of sin, all this sounds weird. But as covenantal children... What I pray is that you start looking at these things and start recognizing them as your heritage. That this whole sacrificial system is a part of your family tree. And that, uh, that our prayer from the day our children are baptized to the day uh, that they leave our home, our prayer is that Christ has become their brother and that they are reconciled to their father. And when they look at the Old Testament of sacrificial work, they're looking at their family tree, the church. And as the church grew in, in its uh, maturity, at last Christ came and made a single sacrifice for all that would bring all of his people in and make them reconciled to his Father as he is the head of the body, which is the church, which is our family. And in that family, we find a true love for each other because of our brother in Christ, or because of our brother who is Christ, that has made propitiation, who took on the wrath for our sin. It is personal. We celebrate it because it is our heritage uh, that God has made in our life 
and made us part of the family of God. So I hope that sticks in your mind as Andrew comes and and gives us the word that the celebration of the resurrection is a personal act for our benefit so that the family of God would include us and that this is part of your heritage and we should be excited about it because as as it becomes more and more real to us, we find we are becoming more and more aware of what is real, that our God has come for our sake and did not just live a perfect life, but died, and didn't just die, but was raised again as an acceptation of his sacrifice for us, that we might have that righteousness on our account. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, are, uh, we don't even know how to begin to give thanks to you. The sacrifice is too great for us to comprehend and the resurrection too glorious for us to know the words to uh, be thankful for it. But Lord... Let our thanks be the work of the Holy Spirit breaking our heart and making us kneel before your word in gratitude and excitement. Let this uh, reminder of the resurrection today be a reminder of the kind of love we ought to have to you so that we might be able to love each other better. Let us be hungry and excited to be able to see each other again because of our love for each other and our need for each other, because of the love we have in Christ that he showed to us in his death and that we are able to be uh, benefited from in his resurrection. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.